Amen. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to be turning to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. I love singing some of the old hymns this morning and also singing some of the uh, songs that are a little newer to us. Of course, I say that. And uh, one time I was telling folks I really appreciated that new song we sang. And uh, turns out it was written in like 1988, you know, and so um, that's all relative. But Hebrews chapter 6 is where we're going to be in just a moment. You can only take one item with you to the beach. What would you take? You only get one item. Charles Little says he'd take his bathing suit, which I, I agree, that's a good answer, but uh, maybe it's a, uh, we're going to assume that that's already on, uh, Charles. Um, but maybe uh, a towel, I don't know, maybe a cup of cold water. Um, you know, maybe you need to take a uh, you know, some sunscreen, uh, for, for, for me, uh, one of the most important items that I can take to the beach is the umbrella anchor. And you'll see that on the screen right here. Now, I'm going to assume also that, you know, I know because some of you say, well, it doesn't do you any good to have the anchor if you don't have the umbrella. Well, I'm going to put the umbrella with the anchor and, you know, assume that that's one item. And, you know, or if I don't have the umbrella, I'm going to go steal somebody's because, you know, that's a, a imperative uh, you know, something for me to have. So, but the anchor is so important because I've tried to use the umbrella at the beach without the anchor. And what happens when you try to use the umbrella without the anchor? I mean, use the umbrella without the anchor. First thing I do when I get to the beach is I take the anchor and I put it in the ground and I start twisting. I'm there usually for several minutes trying to get it firm and secure into the ground. Uh, because if you haven't noticed, uh, my skin will not allow me to be outside of the protection of an umbrella. Uh, I even had some ladies this morning asking me, does the light affect you when it comes in the, 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 the room on Sunday mornings? You know, and I said, I've already got sunscreen on before I preach, so I'm good. <laughs> I'm good with that. Uh, even these spotlights can get a little bright sometimes. But, but when we think about this idea of an anchor, this is what the Hebrew writer is going to talk to us about today. This is what he's driving toward. So Hebrews... Chapter 6, verse 19, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. But it's going to take a moment uh, for the writer to get to this particular point uh, because admittedly this is one of the most confusing uh, texts in all of the letter. And some scholars would even argue that it's one of the most confusing texts in all of the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 6. You may remember a few weeks ago. Uh, we looked at Hebrews chapter 5 and Hebrews chapter 7. Uh, we skipped over 6 uh, because I reminded you that the writer, like some of us teachers and preachers, uh, went on a little bit of a tangent here. It's talking about this idea of, of Jesus being both king and priest. And he's using the Old Testament obscure figure Melchizedek to, to tell that story. Uh, and talks about that in chapter 5, then kind of goes on this tangent in chapter 6, and then comes back around to Melchizedek in chapter 7. So we covered chapters 5 and 7. If you missed that, you can go back and listen to that on our website or YouTube. But today I told you we would come back to chapter 6. And so today we're coming back to the tangent. And let me tell you, it's an important tangent. You know, sometimes, you know, a teacher will go on a rant or a tangent and you think, okay, well, that was a waste of however many minutes of my time. Uh, but for this particular tangent, it is critical and I think important to 
our faith. We don't know who the author is for certain. We don't know exactly uh, who, who he's writing to. Uh, you'll hear me say the writer of Hebrews. Sometimes you'll hear me say the, the preacher of Hebrews. The reason that I say the preacher of Hebrews is because I say the preacher of Hebrews is so it's even believed by, by much scholarship that this was originally when it was um, when it was relayed, it was relayed uh, orally. It was relayed in, in the form of a speech. Obviously, we have the written copy of that today. I uh, don't know, you know whether or not that's true, but it, it does certainly function like a, a speech, a long speech and, and for some of us, but it does function kind of like that. Uh, but what is happening is that Christians are drifting. Uh, Christians are drifting away from this, this faith. The author is telling them to keep their eyes fixed on Jesus. Keep your eyes fixed on him, the author, perfecter of your faith. And a few weeks ago, we talked about entering the rest of Christ. And so Jesus, both king and priest, were right in the middle of this conversation. How can he hold both offices? How can he be both king and priest? This is, this is only made possible by the way of the cross, what Craig talked to us about just a few moments ago. But this idea that he, that he learned obedience from what he suffered, once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And so here we are with that little bit of backdrop, a little bit of context. Let's go back to the end of chapter 5 before we jump into chapter 6. Chapter 5, verse 11. Here we go. We have much to say about this. But it's hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Now we get to chapter six, verse one. Therefore. Let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God. Instruction about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. So I know we have some teachers in the room today. Uh, so teachers, how do you teach your students about difficult things. I mean, what are some of the tactics that you use in order to teach a difficult subject or a hard to understand concept? Uh, I remember when I was in my teenage years, my older brother was trying to teach me about money. Money. Everything that I spent for 30 days, no exception. He said, if you buy a piece of, of chewing gum for a nickel, back then it was a nickel, you know, if you buy a piece of chewing gum for a nickel, you write that down. If you, if you go out to lunch, you write that down. And so for 30 days, I wrote down everything that I spent. And as a teenager, you know, that was a total of like three bucks, you know, for the whole month. Or, but, but it was just interesting to see all the things that I had spent money on. And it helped, it helped teach me about money. How do you teach? How would you teach someone? about a difficult concept or a difficult subject. And so have you ever tried to use reverse psychology? I may suggest that the Hebrews writer 
He's waking up these sluggish students with a little reverse psychology, kind of insulting the pride of the reader so that they will take the dare and be willing to jump after him as he leaps to the solid food, the meat, in just a moment. Chapter 5, verse 11. We have much to say about this, but it's hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. You're slow to understand. You're dull of hearing. How many of that people just get fired up when you, when you hear that? You know, If I were to stand up today and, 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 and to say that to you, my, my guess is that you probably wouldn't like me very much. But this is a tactic that I believe that the Hebrew writer is using. Author Thomas Long says it this way, it's important, of course, to recognize this as a rhetorical ploy. The author is speaking hyperbically and somewhat facetiously, and will admit to this in chapter 6, verse 9. The goal in addressing the readers this way is not to push them down, but to lift them up and to stimulate the resolve to understand what follows. You'll see that quote from Thomas Long on the, on the screen. So... Uh, the, the preacher, kind of the, the writer, the, the author, somewhat confident in having accomplished this, okay, I've, I've got their attention now, you know, by, by way of, of reverse psychology, I've kind of got their attention now. And so the, the preacher moves on, let us move on, taking forward to maturity. And the, and the readers are now going to be challenged, the hearers of this message are going to be now be challenged to imitate Christ, not in this naive kind of mechanical sense of the word. And there's, there's no thought in Hebrews of, of Jesus as merely this human being who lived a moral life and who serves as an attainable ethical example for Christians, but a Christian who faithfully imitates Jesus. It's like a piano player who's, who's playing Mozart well. The writer or the preacher is, is not now telling them to just, hey, now you can forget these foundational truths. Now, the preacher is urging them to go further. He's convinced that we can't stay still in the Christian life. So Long goes on to say, one must always be moving. And I believe that sometimes our moving involves being still. But you'll have to come to our spiritual formation class today if you want to hear more about that. But there's only two directions in which one can move. Deeper or adrift. Either we keep growing, maturing, becoming more profound in our faith, or we are content to float lazily along the surface, unaware that the treacherous currents are pulling us more and more off course until we are hopelessly lost. So make no mistake that the preacher's main goal seems here to be encouraging Jesus followers, not trying to scare them. And that brings us to one of the most difficult to understand texts in the letter. And really, like I mentioned earlier, one in the whole New Testament, according to some scholars. So chapter six, verse four, uh, here's where it gets interesting. It's impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. It's impossible. All right, so 
it's impossible for those who have been enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift, which I believe is, is the heavenly gift, participation in the death and resurrection of, of Jesus, and that when we recognize that, that there's, there is no way to God the Father except through Jesus, he's the way, he's the truth, he's the life, no one comes to him except through Christ. When we place our faith and our trust in him and we're, we're buried in the waters of baptism to, to be raised, to, to live the baptized life. One of our uh, ministers, Justin Peach, is going to be teaching a class on baptism today up in the youth room. I encourage you to, to be a part of that if, if you don't have a class already. But th this is what this, this tasting of the heavenly gift is. And so, so the writer is saying, okay, it's impossible for those who have, have been enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift, who shared the Holy Spirit, who tasted the goodness of the word of God, powers coming age, who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance to their loss. They are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. And then now in verse 7 and 8, he gets to the, kind of this parable. Land that drinks in the rain often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. So, in the words of Mike Myers from Coffee Talk, talk amongst yourselves about that, right? No, I won't make you do that. But a few things seriously that we need to think about when we when we look at these types of texts because this is not the only text that we come to in in the, the biblical narrative that is confusing or could be easily misunderstood there's there's many of these so a few things that are critical when we come to these type of texts to keep in mind it's critical to read the whole and not just the part uh, i said this during our week one and I'll say it again, uh, because when, when this text was developed, when this word was spoken, uh, it didn't have these chapters and verses alongside it. That was something that man put in decades later. So the challenge is that we, we tend to like to do this. We like to pull out these little minute portions of a letter or a book and in so doing, we, we run the risk of getting in all kinds of, of trouble interpretation-wise because we're, we're pulling out these things and we're not looking at them inside the, the context and, and what's going on around it. Um, but this is not how the text was originally relayed. Uh, it was relayed as a whole. It was relayed as so um, in the 11 years that I've been preaching here, I can only think of one time that we have read an entire letter in this worship space. It was a few years ago, uh, the student minister, Justin Peach and I, we, we read the whole letter to the Philippians out loud. I remember somebody came up to me afterwards and said, I just thought you forgot your sermon that day and just started reading it. And so we, we read the whole thing out loud. But that, that's the only time, and I had some of you come up to me and say, you know, I've been in church 50, 60, 70 years. I've never heard an entire letter read publicly like that. But we have to remember that this is how it was communicated. It was communicated as a whole. It was not communicated in these little sound bites. It was not communicated in these, these little parts and pulling out, you know, verse here, verse there, verse there. And so this is critical for us, I believe, as we continue to travel through the text. This is why every year I want to go through a whole letter or a whole book to help us think this way. I've challenged you, and some of you have 
rose to that challenge to, to read this entire letter in its own context all the way through. So that's one. The second thing is that we must approach the text with humility. I could be wrong. I could be wrong. It's critical that we are constantly learning and growing, which is the author's point earlier about being taken forward to maturity. These are things that we have to remember. There, there are things that I believe I, I preached 10 years ago from this pulpit that I would not preach the same way today. Why? Because I'm, I'm learning, I'm growing. And that doesn't mean that the scripture changes. It just means that, that my, my growth and, and my learning and my understanding is constantly being formed. It's constantly being shaped. So we have to approach the texts with humility. Uh, so in talking with another preacher friend of mine this week, we both agreed that we would be wise to, to consider this, this letter or this sermon as a whole. And so back in chapter 3, heading into chapter 4, uh, we see this warning Remember, there's five warnings throughout this entire message. We see this warning not to have an unbelieving heart that turns away from God. And then when we get here to, to chapter 6, we have what we just read. And then the speaker seems to return to it once again in chapters 10 and 11. Uh, so for your homework, I want to encourage you to go and, and read chapter 10, verse 26 through 39. We'll give you just a brief recap in, in chapter 26 of, or verse 26 of chapter 10. For if we willfully persist in sin, after having received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful prospect of judgment. Then he encourages them, don't abandon your confidence, enduring struggles and hardships and even persecution. Verse 39, but we are not among those who shrink back and so are lost, but are among those who have faith and so are saved. So in what we just read in chapter 6, there's all these questions that, that come up. You know, is, is, what is, are we, so is, are we, is it once saved, always saved, or is that not really a thing? Or, or, or you know, do we, do we need to look at something else or look at it another way? And so... He, he encourages them in this, and the idea in chapter 6 is that it's impossible, I believe, for someone who has fallen away to be brought back to repentance seems to be brought back to repentance seems it's impossible to restore them again to repentance if they remain in that state. It's not too far from the idea of casting pearls before swine. It's one thing to share Christ with a person who is struggling with sin, who is still open to hearing. But while a person is immersed in hatred and rebellion, they're not going to listen. But it seems as if the writer and the speaker is trying to convince the reader, the listener, through this warning, through this little reverse psychology, and through this encouragement to grow stronger in the faith. Don't shrink back. Don't drift. Even in the face of great difficulty, don't give up hope or faith. Follow the pioneer, the author. Follow the perfecter of your faith. Follow Jesus, the crucified Messiah. Chapter 6, verse 9. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case, the things that have to do with salvation. God's not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love that you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy. 
but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. So now those who at the beginning of this section were described as poor students, those who were described as as first graders in the faith are now astoundingly prepared for graduate school. Uh, they're, they're ready to, to realize and be imitators of those whose faith and patience inherits the promises, realize the full assurance of the hope to the very end. So one of the things that the speaker, the author, the writer does is in chapter 5, verse 11, he, he uses uh, this, this little Greek word, nothros, which just means dull or, or sluggish, like we said a few moments ago. You're dull. You're, you're, you're sluggish. But then look what he does when he comes back in chapter 6, verse 12. He uses that same word. He says, you don't be nothros. Don't be Sluggish. So, so it's, it's, it's only two times in all of the Bible where the, that this Greek word is used, this idea of sluggish or dull. And he comes back to it and talks about it here. So uh, I want you to just think about someone in your life right now. Look, look at that verse right now. Look, look at that faith and patience inherit the promises. Can you think of someone right now in your life who exhibits great faith and patience? Just think of somebody right now in your life. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you something most preachers will, will never tell you, and that is take out your phone right now and, and text them. If you, if you are thinking of that person right now, just, just take out your phone right now and text them. Say, thank you. Thank you for having great faith and patience. I'm going to give you a second to do that. I'm, I've got somebody in mind that I'm going to send to right now. Just say thank you for having great faith and patience. And if you can't text them right now, then send them a message later. Send. And it's nobody, in, I'm not sending this to anybody in this room, so don't. Don't think that if you didn't get one, I wasn't thinking of you. I'm, I'm thinking of somebody outside of this room right now. And if you cannot think of anyone or don't have anyone that you know with great faith and patience, let me close by telling you about Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, the one who's been very patient with me and my life. The writer explores the way in which Abraham, this Old Testament biblical example of faithful patience, hung on to God's promises through thick and thin. And then when God makes a promise, he swears by his own character because there's no one greater to swear by. And then verse 18, God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. And so I, I want you to just think about you know, where, where you are right now. And if you're someone who's not in a, a season or a state of being greatly encouraged, maybe you're, you're in a state of, of discouragement or a season of discouragement, this is for you. Verse 19, we've, we've come full circle to where we started. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure, 
It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He's become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. If you ever go to the Mediterranean Sea, uh, you'll, you'll notice that the harbors were pretty shallow. And, and so a ship could not enter a harbor when a storm threatened because the hole would shatter when the ship was tossed in shallow water. So what, what would tend to happen, you know, because the Mediterranean floor was also sand without rock, it, it would not have provided this secure anchor. So what they would tend to do is they would put the anchor in a smaller boat that could go through the shallow water. And that smaller boat was rowed into the harbor and the anchor was secured onto the shore. It's likely that the Hebrew writer had this in mind when he portrays Christ as the forerunner, rowing into the inner sanctuary and securing the anchor there. What a beautiful picture for us to be reminded of, of who Christ is in our lives and what he has done. We're not promised that there won't be any storms. What we're promised is that there is a hope that stands firm and secure in the midst of those storms. So what I want to encourage us to do is I just want to give you three prayers this week. Things for us to be praying toward and about. And here they are on the screen. One, I want you to thank God for the confidence that you can have in his promises. We just spend a moment of gratitude gratitude for your hope of a life securely anchored in the very throne room of God into which Jesus has already gone before, in which Jesus has entered. And thirdly, that we ask God to help us live daily with patient faith in that very hope. I want us to do that uh, right now, just as we bow our hearts and go to God in prayer. So Father, we, we pray that uh, you will water what's been sown today. God, a, a difficult text, a text that is not easily discerned. And Father, I pray anything that I have said that is not of you or not from you, God, I, I pray that you will take these very words and, and make them into to your own, that we will continue to search your scriptures daily and be reminded of this hope that we have. God, we thank you for the confidence that we can have in your promises. God, we hear a lot of promises from people on television and on the internet and even in our circles, and sometimes those promises don't come to fruition. But Father, we are mindful this morning that your promises will. God, we thank you for the hope of a life securely anchored in the very throne room of you into which Jesus has entered. God, we're thankful for Jesus even in the midst of our storms of life. Father, we acknowledge to you right now all across this room and those that are listening to my voice online that there are many who are, are in the midst of a, a difficult storm. 
or the health concern, the loss of a loved one, a financial concern, a concern of how my children are going to do this or do that, a concern about what my sunset years are going to look like, a concern about what's going on in our community and, and nation and world. Father, we lift all of these before you right now. Just to, to help us to live daily with a patient hope, a patient faith that has a firm and secure hope. Sometimes it's hard to ask for patience, God. But we ask for your spirit. We pray, come Holy Spirit. And we, we read in your word that that fruit of that spirit will produce patience in our lives. I want to invite the praise team if they'll be making their way up right now. We're going to sing a song. And as we sing uh, this song about heaven coming down and glory filling our soul, I want to encourage you to take just a moment where you're at. Um, maybe you need to do a little business with God just, just right where you're at. Uh, maybe you need to say thank you to that person who has exhibited great faith and patience in your life. Uh, maybe you need to meet with one of our shepherds and just say a word of prayer with them. I know they'd be glad to receive you this morning. There'll be one down, down here, down front. There'll also be one back here in this room, the chapel. If you'd like a more private setting, uh, you can head this way. Let's stand and sing together. Oh, what a wonderful, wonderful day. day.